podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. Dacre Montgomery was 21 when he graduated from WAPA, the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, and headed straight to Canada to star in a lead role in the Power Rangers blockbuster reboot. Soon after, he landed the plum role of Billy Hargrove, the resident bully in the second season of the Netflix hit series Stranger Things, and now he's back with an even bigger role in its third season. I sat down recently with Dacre at his friend's Hollywood Hills home to talk about his determination to be an actor from age 10, the irony of going from being bullied in school to playing one on Stranger Things, and why he ended up covered in cuts and bruises after filming one pivotal scene. I'll try not to spoil it for you. Here's Dacre. Jacob Montgomery, welcome to Aussies in Hollywood. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> so I have never met a Dacre before. Neither have I. <laughs> Has it? Uh, is that a name that comes from somewhere significant? Yeah, it's um, it's in my family history a long way back. Every three or four generations, a second cousin gets it as a first name as opposed to a second name or something like that. The the Barrett Leonard is the lineage, so that's my mum's surname. And the Barrett Leonards are a prominent West Australian family that trace back to the UK in 1700s, I think. So um, that's where it comes from, yeah. And you have some sort of royal connection, I read, is that? Uh, yeah, I heard about that. I'd heard it loosely recently um, from my mum and then it came up in an interview King Charles the something or other. The second. Yeah, a long, a long ways back, but my knowledge is very vague around there but it has French roots, Celtic ties, it has a whole, it's a it's very interesting backstory and my mum's just starting to get involved in the Ancestry.com and sending her blood in and sort of getting wow. involved in learning about the lineage and learning about our family. And, and apparently you and Kit Harrington have a similar... Yes, mum told me that as well. <laughs> Third, fourth cousins if that's even a thing but yes, it traces back to the same, the same person somewhere along the line. Well, you're here, uh, you're here in LA this week because we're finally getting to see the third season of Stranger Things and we won't give away too much, but you have an amazing killer role this season that's going to really surprise a lot of people. And we're sitting in a lovely home up in the Hollywood Hills. Who's, whose home is this? John Gatons, who's a, a screenwriter that uh, came into Dr Power Rangers and ended up having a pretty prominent mentor role on that shoot and then for me for the last three and a half years that I've been lucky enough to be working. So I've lived here whenever I've been in the States and he has writers around to smoke cigars every week and sort of have this <laughs> old Hollywood kind of style of education. But they're extremely grounded, lovely family and have taken me on. So I've been lucky. Yeah. Well, uh, we don't have to go back that far because you're, you're 25, right? 24, yeah. 24, yeah. okay. But let's start with your upbringing in Western Australia, neither of your parents were born and raised in Western Australia, is that right? Yeah, dad's from Auckland and mum's from a little place called Kitchener in Ontario, Canada. Her family, though, is from Western Australia and they both met in Perth and had me there and they were working in the film industry at the time. My dad's still a sound recorder, so my mum was a production coordinator for about 20 years. Mm. Though she worked almost exclusively in Europe and Africa working for Mercedes-Benz and BMW and we spent time away living in like the Northern Italian Alps when I was a kid and I had a very cultured, I think in some respects, upbringing in being able to be on film sets and, yeah, experience I guess what all the cogs that make the machine work behind the camera, all the stuff that you don't see and have hopefully built respect and admiration for those people. Yeah. Wow, that must have been pretty cool. Yeah, um, I felt very fortunate and I think that's where I kind of started saying to mum at about 10 or 11, you know, I really want to I want to participate in this. I want to participate in front of the camera. And I was lucky. My parents, you know, they really, really helped me from the time that I said that, sending me to acting classes and finding me an agent and setting my sights on the drama school or the drama program at my high school and then subsequently on WAPA, which is where my mum had done a broadcasting course in the 90s and graduated in 92. 
and had gone back and taught at. And I sort of set sort of 10, 12-year plan with her at 10 and I was lucky that it... Wait, you sat down at 10 and set up a 12-year plan? Well, we, we were like, we want to go to Mount Lily High School, which is in Perth, and I want to do the SFAPA program, which was the performing arts program. Um, and I was lucky enough after I finished primary school to go and do that. And then I, I wanted to go and do WAPA. And I had a gap year in between though. Went lived in Canada with mum's brother who runs the Vancouver Aquarium. He's a marine biologist. And I think I needed to grow up a lot. I think if I had A, tried to get into WAPA at 16, which was when I graduated school, or had a real opportunity in the film industry, I don't think I would have done it justice. I wasn't... Wow. I didn't have work ethic at 16. I had the passion, but I didn't have work ethic. It took time. So were you, did you grow up on a lot of sets? Is that your experience of the industry rather than watching film and TV? Yeah, well, look, Dad was that father that took the kids to all the, you know, MA 15 plus films, <laughs> you know, and all the other parents shunned him for it. And he would sort of take me and explain to me how CGI worked and, how the stories were constructed and how everything was fake and, and explained to me all the elements. So that was kind of the in-theatre film upbringing. And then in terms of being on set, I remember as a kid going and just misbehaving and being kind of a bit boisterous and all this sort of stuff, but falling in love with the adrenaline on a movie set, you know, shooting 14, 15 hours a day, everyone has to work together, it's a machine, and kind of fell in love with that every drop of energy and effort goes into making a movie in so many ways. So what are your earliest memories of film and television? I mean, other than your dad taking you to mm. inappropriate <laughs> <laughs> by some standards. Yes, yeah. My earliest memories of going onto set were my mum was working in the Northern Italian Alps and we stayed in this hotel on the side of the mountain and she was dating a, a, a German stunt driver who was working on Bond over in Munich or somewhere or other and we lived in this little hotel and mum used to take me up on her scouts to sort of find the locations and I, I remember that and I was about six when we were there um, and just kind of thinking, oh, my God, this, this job not only builds escapism for the majority of the planet, something that people can escape to, but for the people making it, it, you travel and it's a band of brothers and sisters that you kind of travel around the world with and I kind of was like, how do you earn an income off of doing that? <laughs> so you you always thought that you wanted to come here. Was that your end Yeah, goal? Yeah, I think it was. Because that's a pretty ambitious thing for a kid in Perth. I, I mean, it's about as far away from Hollywood as you can get, right? Totally, yeah. And... Um, I mean, I'll touch on later while I th why I think I benefit from having been born in Perth. I'll come back to that because I think there's something really grounding about that city and mm. actually the antithesis that it has to this city, Los Angeles, and how good it could be for your psyche in contrast. But, yeah, my, my goal was always to go to the States and I think that that tall poppy syndrome that sometimes is cultivated in Australia gave me more drive to kind of go, well, you know what, I can actually go and do this and I want to go do something of this and make something of myself and I don't want to be perceived as arrogant or full of myself but I do have a dream and I want to execute that dream to the best of my ability and I don't want to be perceived to be that guy that left because I love Australia, I still live there, I don't live here. Yeah. I saw all these movies and TV shows that I grew up with and I was like, I want to take part in that. It is a machine. It's a completely well-rounded, highly, you know, functioning body of artists creating something amazing, I think. And that was what was really enticing to me. When you grew up, there were quite a few examples of Aussies who'd gone to Hollywood by then. I'm sure there was some that inspired you and made you realise... Well, if they could do it, there is a way to get there. Yeah, well, I think the earliest for me was Heath and I, before I was born potentially, there was a, a show called Sweat, I think, yeah. at Heath. And my mum worked on that and I just oh. remember her having the fondest of memories of him and obviously local crew in Perth that were family friends of my family and just kind of going, well, look, this guy went and he did it and he took control of that and he went and he made something incredible in his career and his life and obviously that's the interesting thing about this industry is that when you live in the public eye people perceive to know you intimately but of course I didn't know him intimately I don't know his personal life so my construction of this idol in my life was more 
of his public persona and his public image, which was more looking at an IMDb equivalent of that early 2000, and 2000 era of going, well, look, here are his credits, here's what he's done, over what course, this is what directors he's worked with. Mm. And I think it is fascinating how people come to to work in this industry and, and following what was their break and then subsequent roles and how did it diversify their career, um, working with different directors, different characters, different worlds. But Heath was definitely very early on and because he had come from Perth, I think there was that direct similarity yeah, of going, right. you know, 20 minutes from my house, he had known X, Y and Z and, yeah. And he... Uh his sister had gone to school with Catherine Langford, so that was another, you know, that connection. Perth connection with yeah. you guys was in, really interesting. Yeah, I know Catherine quite well and when I was finishing season two, she had just wrapped, I think 13 Reasons was about to come out and we, she was doing a film called Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda yes. or something. And I think she, it ended up being called Love, Simon. Love, yeah, and she was across the road, she was staying oh. across the road from me and we ended up catching up before 13 Reasons or the second season of Stranger Things came uh-huh. out. But, yeah, it is, it's very similar in that dynamic that Perth is quite small, I think, in some respects, which is nice to be able to stumble upon Australians when you're travelling or when you're away and, and trade stories of that thing that you're talking about, which is we got on a plane and we went and you take a huge risk, even though it is at the same time a huge opportunity. Yeah. Probably the most famous Whopper graduate was Hugh Jackman. Did you ever come across him? Yeah, I mean, he came and spoke at our school, I think, at the start of third oh. year and I couldn't make it into the room. <laughs> it was full. The whole school had gone in and I remember standing and there was a slit of glass sort of down the centre of the door and I could see him but I couldn't hear anything he was saying. I remember running down and I was like, shit, I missed it. And and I stood outside and just watched his mannerisms and how he was talking and, you know, I, I had so directly attached to my dream at that point. As, you know, second year of Whopper was a big turning point for me in my work ethic, work ethic and my drive and just visualising the dream and visualising the, the ground I wanted to walk on and the people that I wanted to meet and I think every night going to bed going, this is how I want to see it come. And I think the power of visualisation without getting too meta is what's well, exactly that. I think it is powerful. It's pretty impressive for somebody who was so young when you started this plan that you had that drive and that determination because a lot of kids that age are playing video games and, you know, not totally. really having any idea what they want to do. Yeah, and I think I was lucky that I, I, I had and have a mother who reinforced a lot of that in me and was, look, you can go out and take it, you can get whatever you want. I think it's very important to have that, you know, the earliest form of a mentor for me, you know. Right. Now, I don't know if this is correct because I, I always assume when I read things online you have to ask the source. Yeah. But you, when you were in high school, you had some experience with bullying. Is that Big right? time. I, yeah. I, I was super lost as a kid and, I mean, I've over the years suffered pretty heavily from, you know, like a lot of anxiety and um School wasn't easy and that's why I've been very open about encouraging kids to understand that that's only one part of your life. It's not representative of your whole life. Some kids have a better experience, some have worse, but it's important to know the silver lining exists and I didn't take hold of it until I graduated, until I left school. But it also shapes who you are. That's another thing I've been very vocal about is that without those experiences, I don't think I would be where I am today. And I think it formed a thing inside of me that went, you tell me no and my yes feels more powerful somehow. Hmm. You know, you knock my insecurities in some way, shape or form and I feel like I can build myself up. That retaliation against those actions in your mind, I think can be a powerful thing if you harness it in the right way. Was it a constant through high school or just a certain period? Yeah, it was pretty constant. And I never told my mum until a couple of years ago. Oh, no, um, really? But, uh, but look, uh, you know, I still... Why were, a, they, why were you bullied? I don't know. I think I was a really sensitive kid. I think I am still really sensitive. I'm still very receptive to everything that's going on around me and I think that... But looking back on it, all those bullies, their insecurities, I think were just as real as mine were. And I think they saw a kid who reflected them in some respects. I think we do have lots of similarities. 
and they channeled their insecurity into antagonizing me. And I, you know, I... Was it physical or just verbal? Both, yeah. Wow. Both and, you know, and there were a lot of other kids around me that were having a far worse time and I can't speak to having, you know, have been antagonized in... There's so many people out in the world that are on a daily basis once they've graduated high school in the workplaces we've seen in the last couple of years with the the me too movement finally a lot of stuff coming out and sort of boiling up to the surface and i think it's important to understand that my experience is only one experience you know was it also I read that you were overweight? Was that part of what they bullied you about? Not so much. I was going to say it's hard to I, believe now looking no, at no, you. No, <laughs> no, I was. I was about 90 kilos when I finished school, um, which for my height, um, it's sort of body – like I was, a, I was a pretty big kid, but I never got bullied so much for my weight. But when I left school, I went to Vancouver – because my mum's Canadian, I thought this is my way in and I started doing acting classes and I wanted to meet this agent in Vancouver and I finally, after three months of sending her self-tapes, I found out where she lived because it turns out she walked her dogs with my auntie <laughs> and she finally agreed to meet with me and she said, look, I don't represent kids because I feel like you, you, know, you need to have a clear understanding of what you want to do, right, for the course of your career so I can follow you through. And I was like, I understand that. She's like, I want you to go back to Australia and I want you to train and you need to lose... 15 kilos and I went back to Australia I lost 25 kilos I discovered the gym I didn't discover like eating well to begin with but I discovered the gym and then I discovered you know having a clean balanced diet I discovered yoga I discovered boxing over the course of and throughout the next three and a half years through Whopper but no I wasn't I was a pretty overweight kid well, I find it kind of ironic and I'm not giving anything away because I just got to watch the first uh, four episodes of season three that Billy is a lifeguard and, I mean, we saw Billy being quite a bully in the previous yeah. seasons but, you know, he he calls out one of the kids and the gives kid. them a, yeah. a name, Lard yeah, something. Yeah, Lard us. Yes. Yeah. And that must have been really hard to be on the other side of that even as an actor. Yeah, I think introducing yourself to the, you know, the kid obviously was important to me. Um, But I think, yeah, just having a level of humility about it all and going, look, I wasn't that kid. That I wasn't the guy yelling at the people. I was the kid on the other side of the mm-hmm. pool and putting yourself in his shoes. And you're right, it is, it is extremely ironic, I think, in a lot of ways. But it also puts me in a place of, I think, in some respects, when season two came out, I was so lucky, but I had this level of, I'm not this pin-up version of something or someone that you think that I am. And I think you have to be very careful about being diplomatic about how you say that in a lot of ways because you have to be thankful for what you have. But no, I wasn't, I certainly wasn't that guy yelling at the fat kid. I was more the opposite on the other end of the spectrum. So did that help you when you got the role? Can you talk a little bit about how you ended up getting the role of Billy and what the Duffer brothers told you yeah. You know, about him. Well, I, for starters, in my self-tape, I, you know, I totally put myself out on the line with that and I made some crazy decisions that I, it's all part of the mentality of, you know, you can go to the States and you can do it and you can take control of your destiny and I want to jump off and I want to take a stab in the dark. So that was representative of that. In terms of the Duffers, we got to episode four or five shooting and we didn't have five, six, seven, eight, nine, which was nine episodes in the second season. And I sort of said to them, is he just bad because he's bad? Like that can't be possible. I want to humanise this character because I had realised that in school all those bullies were just human beings, right? They were just as insecure as I was. And that was subsequently when they wrote the scene with my dad, you know, and you can see the trickle-down effect that our parents have on us and Mm. you can see his homophobia or everything that's reflected in that scene that I think has made Billy the way he is because you're not just bad or good. I'm sorry, but that's just a one-dimensional version of something. You can't play a villain. And I've never been vocal about I played a villain in season two and three. It's not I played a human being. The great part, I've just been touring a little bit with um, Carrie Elwes, right, And he talks about the grey area. So nothing's black and white really. But if we get to play a character that exists in the grey area, which is I think what people consider a villain, let's say, the stereotype, 
um, is fantastic because you can make really unusual choices. And I think a lot of the time someone like Jack Nicholson in his career made really unsuspecting choices in his acting which kept the audience on the edge of their seat, which makes him such an interesting dynamic actor to watch. The Duffers and I were very, very diligent about creating a character that represented those values of being unsuspecting but also humanising a villain. Um, and I'm lucky that I had that and have had that subsequently in, in season three. I, you haven't seen the ending yet but there's a huge payoff for my character that I'm, again, really lucky for. Wow. I think people are going to be really shocked because your role you really move into the centre stage of this season and, and and because everything's so secretive about this show, probably by the time people hear this, a lot of them will have already binged the entire season, you know, maybe a week after it comes out, so we don't have to be quite so careful, but you block your ears if you... Yeah. <laughs> you Your character goes through an even bigger transformation. Yeah. How was that on set and talk about being in Atlanta all that time, the way you all worked together? Was it a family? Did you all go method? Was it just fun? Yeah, I mean, it was a metamorphosis for me this season. I'd gone from the perceived antagonist to having some humanised qualities at the end of the second season. Um, it was a metamorphosis in the sense that it gets very dark before it gets light. Television's interesting, especially with so many storylines you come in and out of the narrative so much that it's oftentimes hard to see other actors because everyone flies home if they're not needed for a couple of weeks at a time. This season, my story arc predominantly, as you'll see in the final episodes, take place, takes place with Millie. So I, I spent a lot of time working with her this season, which I found extremely rewarding for a 14-year-old that supports her family and she's doing schooling in between, mm. you know, hugely emotional scenes. I found that really rewarding. I give everything when I'm on set, absolutely every drop of everything that I've got and I felt that she gave just as much, if not more, which is extremely admirable. This season was great, this, the the sauna scene, which you'll come to see. Oh, I've seen that one. Yeah, was, wow. was shot over five, five days um, and I just went for it, went for it, everything, everything that I could. And I have a photo when all the prosthetics were taken off me and my wig was taken off. And there's a photo of me in, in Billy's jeans with my shirt off. And you can see I'm just covered in cuts and bruises from head to toe. And I just gave it everything. And I said to Sean Levy, stuff my body image. I want to sit on the floor and I want to cry and I want to have my stomach out and I want to look disgusting and gruesome and you know when I'm laughing at Max through you know that little screen in the sauna went so crazy I headbutted it and smashed the plate glass through and spat all over it like it was just such an amazing scene that they'd written for me yeah. because I go in and you I you were supposed to do that right yeah smash the no I wasn't I what? wasn't it was fixed I just was going for it so much because I'm laughing at her and then I'm screaming yeah. at her and then I'm crying and then I'm event you know there's so much going on in that and I lost my voice every day wow. um, and I just I'm a firm believer and you just got to this is episode everything. four folks go back and watch it yeah. again <laughs> think about that <laughs> hopefully there's not too many specific spoilers in no there, no that's not specific that's that's really generalizing great. as much as I can <laughs> What about, did you, I mean, you didn't have any real time on set with uh, David Harbour and Winona Ryder, mm. who were the veterans. Yeah. But, um, and the Duffers were around a lot. Did you, what do you, what did you learn from this experience and did any of the actors that were older than you, because it was about three or four generations exactly. across it, did you learn from the ones below you, the ones above you? Uh, did you stick with the guys who were your age? Um, I, I think I just learnt the same amount from everyone, which is that they were all so committed to the role. I also learnt that collaborative, creative freedom on a film set or a television set is so unbelievably rewarding as an artist and I think for the product. Like Netflix had trust in those, those brothers to go mm. and do that and I think that element maybe separate from the network or studio system that we've seen with all these streaming platforms, giving the artists this kind of uninhibited voice I think has been really rewarding. And we'll make changes on the day. We'll, you know, improvise and change blocking and do all kinds of stuff. So it's one big fluid motion 
And I think every cast member took part in that and I learned from everyone because of that, just how freely and amazingly it can be to work as a collaborative team. Wow. So did they have any idea where your character was going in season three while you were working Mm. together on season two or did they look at you and it sort of also came together because of the actor playing the role? I think it's in in their style of working, the Duff Brothers, I think it's inevitable that it comes together as you meet the actor and it evolves through the process. But we had discussed a lot in season two um, and I wanted to learn more about Billy's biological mother, which is something that gets extrapolated upon in season three. That was a big thing. And they rang me three months before they started writing season three and we had a huge Skype um, discussing Billy's backstory and how that might be worked in. and How exciting for you as an actor to be involved in that process. Yeah, yeah, it's it's hugely exciting and I had kind of written this crazy backstory for them and, and the good thing about the Duffers is that, you know, you bring a whole bunch of ideas and they'll take one. And I brought some uh, looking, in retrospect, ridiculous ideas. <laughs> um, but they, they used it, they used one of them and that was the biological mother component, which, the, as I say, is sort of unfolds later in the season. Going back to WAPA, I'm trying to figure out the timeline because I first met you when you did Power Rangers. In fact, I think I met you at Comic-Con. Yeah. Um, and then after that you did a, a you were nice enough to come and screening. introduce the yeah, screening yeah. for Australians in Film. Had you already graduated? Where were you at and how did this all start? Because you ended up graduating with like these three huge projects either finished or you were on your way to do them, right? Yeah, so in the third year of WAPA, I sort of targeted that I needed to do a lot of work on my accent um, and a lot of self-taping and extracurricularly quite against the nature of the structure of a drama school. I went and um, messaged every manager and agent I could in LA through IMDb. And I started reaching out to everyone and I started self-taping. And I had met many managers over Skype. And one lady had come to Perth, who's now my manager, Latal. Um, mm-hmm. And she left Perth after meeting me and I had had an old tape that I had sent her. And she rang me about three weeks before we were due to graduate and said, can you be in LA tomorrow on Thursday? I said, for what? And she said, for Power Rangers, it's a test deal. Final stage, you just want to come in, lay it all down. And I, but I said, I did an audition. And she said, well, they've seen this self-tape. They need someone, get on a plane. I split the business class ticket. I got on a plane with my mum. We landed in LA. It was the first time I'd ever been to LA on the Saturday. And That I, was your first trip to LA? First trip. And I, I'd never... I'd and you know, were already like almost guaranteed a role. Like well, I'd didn't. never done a callback as well and I was so absolutely fundamentally nervous about two things. The first was the test the following day. And secondly was, what if I get this? I don't want to lose my anonymity. They were my two biggest fears getting on the plane. I went and did the test on the Sunday with all of the producers and the studio heads from Lionsgate and John Papstira, who's a wonderful casting director. And they rang me on the Monday and they said, you've got the role the following morning. And I kind of was like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. I've been waiting for this. And, but it wasn't due to start for four or five months in which time I had to go train. So I went home to Australia and I went and did showcase with the rest of my class and graduated the day I turned 21 in Sydney. And I and you already knew on that I, day that you had this big role in an American film. Yeah, and I kind of just tried to get my head screwed on and I was like, look, you've been working a very long time for this. Put your head down, go back to Perth. And I spent three and, three and a half months training before I got on a plane to Vancouver. We trained three hours a day, six days a week. And then I got on a plane and we shot 92 days and I worked 89 of them. It was a huge production schedule and we did everything under the sun. We worked with NASA, their flight simulators. We built, you know, all kinds of underground water systems and had film crews. And it was just like to be thrown to number one on the call sheet and have to sort of go, I want to be a sponge and learn from everyone, but at the same time have to hold yourself and keep your shit together essentially, was an amazing, amazing opportunity um, and hugely rewarding. And that took me to about six months into the first year out of WAPA when we wrapped that film. And you played the Red Power Ranger. 
which must have been kind of a surreal experience. Definitely. Um, because it's kind of like the fantasy of what everybody who play acts when they're young totally. <laughs> would want to be one of the Power Rangers, yeah. right? I yeah. don't know if you had that experience. Not directly with the Power Rangers. I, I was a little bit young. I'd missed it by a couple of years, uh, at least the main fandom. But I just growing up and watching those action heroes and then, you know, flying through Vancouver doing eight-minute continuous shots and doing car chases and, you know, <laughs> driving onto springboards and flipping your car over and being in burning trucks and just doing all kinds of crazy stuff, I was like... The first time I read the script, I was like, this is going to be so much fun and so, so much learning involved. So when you finished Power Rangers and it came out, was there a period where nothing happened or did everything sort of... So my mentality about this, obviously, this whole industry and since I've been lucky enough to be working is read everything under the sun whether it's on the blacklist, it's not going to be, get made, it's already been made, it's in your inbox, whatever it is. But be very careful about where you go and what you do and how you structure your character's journey through all of your projects. So when I finished Power Rangers, after sleeping for a week straight, <laughs> I spent the next four and a half months reading everything but not engaging in anything unless I absolutely fell in love with it. And four and a half months, almost to the day, I got Stranger Things season two, the role of Billy in my inbox. And it was that day that I got it, that I made that self-tape and kind of went all out and put everything on the line. And again, it was a Thursday and Friday I got a call saying, can you test in LA next week? But the Duffers want to Skype you on Sunday. I Skyped them on sun Sunday. And again, I got a call on Monday saying the test deals off the plate. They want to offer you the role and I didn't meet them until we had our first script read three weeks later. In, in Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. Wow. So. I got to be on that set um, on second season and it's a very cool, um, the sound stages and, and the whole setup amazing. there. Yeah. It must have been a really thrilling thing because it's one thing to do a movie and then leave but when you're part of an ongoing show. And an ensemble, such yeah, a big ensemble. Yeah. Um, I felt really fortunate to be a part of that. And I think the great thing about that set is even though in your peripheral, to, to describe to the listeners, I guess, even though in your peripheral there's these big sets and showy lights and amazing things going on around you that make the 10-year-old version of yourself so giddy with excitement, <laughs> the great thing about that set is it feels like you could hold it in your hands. It's so intimate. Yeah. And that's what's so rewarding, I guess, yeah. that I was touching on earlier that I find rewarding about the show. The intimacy is so, I feel like it's just resounding off my, like, in my head. I'm like the intimacy and the organic nature of that, the way that set is run is, that's really special. Did you embrace the whole 80s thing and the hair? Yeah, totally. I mean, that mullet was <laughs> and has subsequently become a big part of my character. Yes. Um, <laughs> the high-waisted jeans and all that sort of stuff and the earring and just a bit of everything. And this season my mullet is longer and I have a tattoo which we constructed and worked on and um, just little tidbits, I guess, little Easter eggs. And I thought it was funny that... You know, usually in a show it's the woman that's kind of um, objectified and in the beginning uh, because he's a lifeguard you had all the uh, older, yeah. the mums, well they were young kind of hot mums but all the mums by the pool yeah. were just counting down for the moment where Billy would make his entrance as yeah. the lifeguard. Yeah. I mean how was that for you filming on the set? Was it kind of fun or was it awkward? It was, it was fun. I mean, there was, I am naturally very anxious when there's like extras. Uh, there was 250 extras or something at the pool that day. And I don't know, I'm, ve I'm very insecure. I, 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 at this, specifically at this point, I'm, I've always been insecure about my body and obviously coming out with my shirt off and it's 250 people extra that I don't know, you know, and you try to meet everyone, but it's like, I can't <laughs> go around and meet right. everyone. So I was very nervous. Um, Touching on the objectifying quality, it's interesting. I am actually so glad that that's how it starts because it's so not representation of where it goes. Right. And I think I was initially worried that that was where it was going to go. But I'm so thankful that it leads the audience in that direction and sort of tightens that lackey band out and then whips them back into what becomes the storyline that we get to know of Billy yeah. in season three. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Is it true that you were voted at the end of high school the most likely to be a Hollywood star? Yeah. Yep. I failed drama, but I somehow. And wait, got voted. How, how did you fail drama? How does anyone fail drama? Exactly. You <laughs> asked me. Well, there was a there was a um, exam or uh, academic component. I didn't do well in that. I think I got like forty eight percent or something in my TE. But at the assembly, yes, uh, you know, um, close to graduation. Um, my my drama teachers sort of said that they had voted that that would be the case and I was lucky. So have you been back at all? Not to my school, no. I haven't been back to my high school. But uh, but there was one really amazing drama, a younger drama teacher at that school who had some really interesting ideas and tested the mould of what, like we did Titus Andronicus, which is arguably Shakespeare's bloodiest play Mm. she took a big risk doing that she cast me as Titus and that was the first big opportunity that I had ever gotten what Um, was her name Moya Moya Thomas she yeah very early on played that mentor role within my education a drama education and what about at WAPA did you have people that really yeah helped I if I'm honest with you I had a tough time at WAPA I I found it extremely rewarding and but I think like my gap year, I went in distracted. And on the first year, I was really distracted. I actually got asked to leave the course a number of times um, because I would rock up to cl- every class. I never missed a class, but I lacked that drive and I had a lot of distraction that I think the powers that be found it hard because it's such a tight-knit group of people, right? So you have nine boys, nine girls every year. Really? That's it? That's it. And you have 50 contact hours a week and you wow. it's one team and I think I was quite aloof and I don't blame them for that at all. So, so how we, did you stay in when they kept telling you to leave? Well, the third time I was asked at the end of first year, I went away in those – school holidays, if you will, um, and did a lot of thinking. And second year was the first time in my life, my academic sort of version of my career, that I came back embodying this passionate, hugely, like my work ethic I felt, and my ego. I think in a lot of ways I was, I didn't want to cut my hair or shave my face or do any of this sort of stuff and become a part of this. And in second year, I lost a lot of weight and put on a lot of weight and dyed my hair peroxide blonde and took all these weird choices in the plays and fully committed. So when third year came around, I targeted a couple of things that I really wanted to learn. And that was where arts meets commerce. So I wanted to learn about the business of the industry. And I wanted to practice the American accent and I wanted to go home every night and self-tape. So me and one other guy would go home every night and self-tape all year and I did 90 self-tapes that year before I booked the Power Rangers role and we just kind of put our heads down and we did all of this stuff extracurricularly, as I'm explaining. Um, But it took that third time of being asked to leave to kind of go, look, dude, as in me, I've wanted that my whole life. And you've got to really get your shit together. Mm. Well, you were still pretty young then, weren't you? Yeah, I got into WAPO when I, just before I turned 18. And uh, yeah, I just had some soul searching to do, I think. And I think I did it. And I think you have that moment every couple of years in your life, whether it's to do with your career or not. And this, this particular moment was to do with my career. It was a valuable lesson. You said at one point that you were terrified. One of the things you were terrified about was losing your anonymity that's already happened, I'm assuming, after Stranger Things was watched by how many million people all yeah. around the world. What was that like when it happened? The day that it came out, I got on a plane home to Perth and I didn't leave for three months. I am very much have had to come to terms with that over the last few years. I feel like I'm in a much better place. I would also encourage you and anybody else to so realise that there is a very, very normal version of this existence that I think a lot of people don't really talk about. I live a very, very normal life. I get to travel a lot and partake in my dreams, but I also live a very normal life in the interim. Yeah. So I think as a... Well, it's kind of like people don't imagine Russell Crowe sitting on his farm. Exactly. You know, they're the times we don't... Yeah. The paparazzi aren't around, right? And, and as an inspiring actor, that's what you see of the industry. 
so you think that that's representative of the lifestyle, but it's not. It's really not. I definitely believe that you can have a very normal existence. But at the same time, I I am very, very much not about being noticed or anything. I'm so I'm actually so socially awkward. I don't like going to parties. I don't like my partner and I were lucky enough to be invited to um, you know the Oscars Vanity Fair party and. We're wow. both we're both so awkward, you know. We kind of rocked up and we're like, I still don't know anyone. I mean, I've only done two jobs. I don't know anybody. We saw like a couple of people that I knew, a couple of publicists and a couple of producers, and it's <laughs> but it's kind of like we we feel totally like fish out of water. We're my partner's from Perth as well. I'm from North Perth. She's from Dalkeith, and we just kind of shrunk back in and went and got a burger and went home <laughs> because we, I, you know, well, you I, know, you've made it when you you know that, right? I mean. I've never gotten invited to the Vanity <laughs> Fair party and I've been here 30 years. I mean, most actors say that you can only get in there if you've got an Oscar in your hand, basically. Yeah. So, so that must have been pretty surreal. Very surreal. And I think being surrounded by a lot of people that I had looked up to for a long time was, um, you know, it is the stars in your eyes moment, I think, of going, but also living the normalcy of it. Right. That everybody's just a person in there. A person. And, and and that's what I think is even more amazing is that they're all humans but they've achieved these amazing things that have put them to a lot of people in this place of they're gods, they're, you know, that's the pinnacle of success. And I think it's amazing because they are all just human beings who have achieved amazing success in each of the different facets of their industries. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to go back to what you said at the beginning about coming back to talking about why coming from Perth is important and also bring up the question, the one question I ask everybody in this series um, is, you know, because non-Australians are always saying, oh, what's in the water down there and what Mm. makes you all from such a small country have such an incredible number of success stories? And I wonder if you have any theories on that, if you've thought about it. Yeah, I... It's going to sound a little cliche perhaps, but my one theory about Australia and Perth, I'll say in particular for me, is that when I go home to Perth, I'm the 10-year-old dreamer. I'm not given the satisfaction of the travel and the cars and the lights and the glitz and the glamour that I think everybody thinks the industry has. I am just the 10-year-old kid who wanted it so goddamn bad and it isn't at my doorstep. It's a normal, beautiful city, beautiful environment. We have high standard of living. Like we're very, very fortunate in Australia. And that's why I go home. That's why I live in Australia. Because you can just be the dreamer, I think, in in some respect. And do you feel that there's something about being Australian that when you're outside Australia helped make you the person or the actor that you became that there are just so many you mean like what do you what do you mean mean like there's it's a very small country and we have so many not just even actors but behind the cameras as well success stories a lot of people think it's uh it's because of the distance that people come Mm. and they just can't give up like if you just lived in arizona and you had a bad few weeks you just get on the greyhound bus and go home a lot of australians it's like once you've yeah. made that leap and also it's a sort of a give it a go kind mm. of mentality maybe exactly and there's I think, a lot of theories out there but i'm always curious to hear like well, think, what goes through the mind of the people that make it well i think you have to be more multifaceted right because you're coming from a country that's further away you don't have the same accent you don't know the way necessarily the ins and the outs of the american film industry works you have to come multifaceted Whopper training was so crucial for that because I got that diversified blanket of skill set. And that's one big thing for Australians. We have government-sponsored training. I mean, that you all come trained as trained actors to America. And we Uh, haven't spent 150 grand on, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Which I think we're lucky, we're we're very lucky to have, have had that, yeah. So that means really anybody has a shot in Australia. Yeah, You don't have to go into debt for the rest of your life or be rich. Yeah, totally. We're very, very lucky about that within the government system for sure. What's uh, next for you, do you know? Or are you looking for that one thing you're going to fall in love with again? I've been looking for a long time and I was fortunate to stumble upon something that I never thought 
would take my interest and it has in a lot of ways. I'm actually doing a romantic comedy called The Broken Heart Gallery. We're shooting in Toronto in about two weeks. It's so, so good for me. I think I'm so innately scared of comedy just as a whole. As an actor, I feel like I love drama. That's what I live for. That's what I grew up wanting to do. I also feel like this is going to be a really, really good ego stripping exercise because I have to take the piss out of myself. I have to take the piss out of myself in a lot of ways that I only do around my mates or my family. Mm. And I think right now in my career, that is exactly what I need. And I also want people to see me in a different light as well from Power Rangers and from Stranger Things. And it's a script that's been on the blacklist for eight years. It's so, I mean, eight years ago, 2012. Um, it was, I mean, it's so well-written, well-rounded. Um, and the character's just so far from me, I think, in a lot of ways. Who's making it? And just in a nutshell, give us the, the tagline. Yeah, the t- I mean, the tagline is basically there was a museum in Croatia of, of, all, of all the things that we leave behind from our breakups, little tokens and whatnot. Mm. So this girl in this script, which is played by another Australian, a girl called Geraldine Viswathanan, I think oh, is yeah. how you say her last name. She was great in Blockers. And really, really good. She's fantastic. Um, and uh, she basically meets a guy in New York who's opening a boutique hotel. And in a roundabout way, they fall in love. And she creates this museum of broken hearts in New York in his hotel. Um, and it's a really, really sweet story. And it's the people that did The Room, uh, 500 Days of Summer, mm. 13 Reasons, Mandy Tiffy and... Wow. Um, it's a fantastic crew of people and I think it's going to be it's going to be great. It's my first independent film that I'm you know I have a big role in. So yeah. I think there's a certain level of weight and responsibility that comes with that that I'm really really ready to step into those shoes and give it a go. But as I say mostly for me it's like this ego stripping thing of like yeah. I like hate singing, well, you know what I mean? And there's some scenes in the thing where it's like it's not like a musical, but I have to take the piss out of myself and I, I think it's going to be a really good exercise for me. Well, I think that this season of Stranger Things is probably uh, going to make you even more well-known and recognisable immediately by pretty much anybody that watches it this time. They're not going to be like, isn't that guy? It'll be like, oh, <laughs> yeah. the sauna scene. Uh, the sauna scene. <laughs> um, so... Are you, how are you feeling about that? Because there's a big premiere coming up and you know that's going to peak again. I feel really, really excited. It's different this time, huh? Yeah, I feel, I feel ready in my, in my personal life, in my work life. Um, I spent the last two years really working towards this, all the press, everything that we've been doing in the lead up. I feel so ready to, um, to step into this new pair of shoes and just I, I, I love working and I just want to keep working. It's so lucky that this has opened up avenues or the avenues that it has and i know the duffers had mentioned the jack nicholson uh inspiration uh do you look at actors like that and like heath and and follow how they handled certain aspects of their career or do you try and stay away from yeah i think it's interesting uh there's two sides that i think there's how they handled their career and how they acted i think the latter for me I definitely don't study any actors because I think it's important to just do your own thing and be your own person. In terms of handling your private life, that's a really interesting one. I think that I draw on a lot of my own anxieties that keep me and my friends and family sort of safe in the pockets that I would love them to be in, in terms of um, not wanting to have them too exposed or affected by these sort of things. But there are some great examples of people that stay out of the limelight. Secondly, gone are the days where you didn't know what an actor was doing and social media didn't influence you losing the escapism. Oh, um, it's Leo, so I don't know what he's doing because he's not posting on Instagram (laughs) or Snapchat every 10 seconds. So when I watch Leo, I'm not watching the Leo that I know in his private life and what he thinks about the world and seeing him all the time. And what he ate for dinner last night. Literally. And that to me, when you know all of that, that loses that level of escapism and I think what a a lot of people would call the old old Hollywood style Mm. of um, exposure. And it's interesting being young, streaming platforms change things a lot. I think social media has changed things a lot and just desperately wanting to have that 
box off side of yourself. It is hard. And I think I'll be honest. Yeah, because with the you. social media is a huge expectation, particularly if you're in a show like Stranger Things, right? And I definitely try to keep it to a minimum. And my, my social media is mostly just my Instagram and it's very, um, it's very artistic, I guess. It's not really a representation of my thoughts and my opinions and those sort of things. And, but I'm still figuring it out. I don't have all the answers. I'm still, I mean, I'll be learning till the day I die, you know. And yeah. I, and, and the industry is changing. You know, we're going to see the rise of Apple and Disney Plus or whatever it's called this year. And that'll change, I think, everything again. The marketplace will be changed again. The demographic as the younger get older, is, it's always changing from a business perspective, I think. Is, is there a Stranger Things 4 that you know about? And if there is, I don't know if we can ask what happens to you at the end, but I'm assuming that you're still around for season four. Um, I think the, the good thing about the Duffer Brothers is they don't want to stretch this out too much. They want to tighten up um, the story in each, in each episode and give the fans really fleshed out stuff so that it's not drawn out so much. So I can't really speak to a fourth, a fifth, a sixth season because... I don't know how long they're going to want to do it. I don't think they're want to, going to just want to juice it, overjuice it. Well, they want to come up with a way to end it on, in their own exactly. time and plan towards that, right? Yeah. But as far as you know, you weren't told this is it. When you finish season three, I'm assuming. No, no. <laughs> no. Good. Yes. Good. So we'll see what the future holds in the world there. Well, I can't wait to see what the future holds for you, Dacre. So thank you, thank you very it. much for doing this. and Thanks for having me on. And uh, hopefully we'll see you back in Australia filming something there as well at some point soon. I'd love to soon. Listening to Dacre, I'm relieved to hear how much easier it is for this next generation of Aussies in Hollywood. Thanks to the wonders of advanced technology and a lot of frequent flyer miles, they can have it all. And it looks like Dacre is well on his way. Until next time, that's all from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater, and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look me up on iTunes. Music.